Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24, we are nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a long time coming. I think I've had three kids since we've been in the book of Luke. Just, yeah, amen to that. Um, we celebrate that. Uh, Luke chapter 24. We've got this text before us in verses 36 through 49 and then one more in the book of Luke. I'm going to read our text over us this morning. Uh, follow along in your translation. Uh, it'll be Luke 24, 36 through 49. The word of God reads this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took, took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, in, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray one more time uh, and ask God for his help as we walk through his word. Lord, we, um, like the disciples, pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. We pray along with the psalmist that now you would open up our minds, Lord, and, and show us great and wondrous things from your law. We confess that we uh, need your help in this. God, we need uh, the power of your spirit to illuminate your scripture. And so in this time, as we receive your word, Lord, we confess that we are dependent on you. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so uh, if you know me, you know... <coughs> that I, I'm, I'm uh, afraid of. <coughs> I don't enjoy flying. And I'll never forget sitting in our living room uh, before we moved to Lucy. 
in our little apartment in South Haven, Mississippi, and Hillary looking over to me and asking me, do you think that you would like to go skydiving? And I said, absolutely. I would not like to go skydiving. Uh, the idea, for some reason, grew on me, though. Maybe it was because she was so willing to skydive that I didn't want to seem like I was scared in front of my wife. But she wanted to do it, and she essentially talked me into it, and so we went and did that before any kids. Uh, before we moved to Lucy, we went skydiving. But when we got there, I needed the instructors. I feel like I asked at least a thousand questions while we were there. I, I said, how do these parachutes work? How do the backup parachutes work? I, I need to know the ins and outs of this sardine can you call an airplane that you're taking me up in the air. I, I need to know the pilot. Is he experienced? How long has he been doing this? All for the reason that I needed assurance that when I dropped out of this plane, I wasn't going to crash a tunnel to China, that I needed reassurance of the truth. And so what I believed about this organization, their protocol, their gear, their pilot, their airplane, their parachutes, influenced my decision on whether or not I was going to walk forward and go through with what I said I was going to do. So risk was welcomed now that I had the assurance that, you know, you're more likely to die in a car crash than you are in skydiving. And so truth influences our decisions. As we get older, how many times do we hear or have you said, if I were younger, if I only knew what I know now, I would change some things. If I only would have known, if I only would have believed Work practically as a Christian, we believe that the truth that we believe influences right what we do. There are times when we lack confidence in the truth found in God's word, and it leads to sin. It leads to specific actions. And in our text this morning, these men must be convinced they must be reassured that Jesus Christ has bodily risen from the dead before they can be commissioned on his mission. That truth informs our action. That doctrine, the truth of God's word, is the foundation for all our obedience to him. And we see that in the lives of the disciples. And so what I want to do this morning is to help us see through this text how Jesus is reassuring the disciples and what that leads to in their life. And so first in the text, if you would look at verse 36, he reassures them of peace. He reassures them of peace. As they were walk, talking about these things, look at verse 36. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, what things are they talking about as they discuss these things? And we just look at the prior section of verses right before verse 36. They're speaking of his resurrection, that they had just come. Verse 34, and the disciples with them gathered saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. 
And so they were discussing the resurrection of Christ. And so Jesus comes and the first thing that he says to them is peace to you. That phrase alone is really not unique to Christianity, that there are other cultures and other Eastern religions that use the phrase as a, as a common greeting, peace to you. But this regular cultural greeting out of the mouth of the resurrected Lord adopts a more serious, real meaning in the life of the disciples unique to Christ himself and what he has to offer. Christ himself, as predicted in the book of Isaiah, is referred to as the what of peace, the prince of peace. The angels celebrating his birth said, peace on earth with whom he is well pleased. And so we know that it's a fruit, Galatians chapter five, that the spirit of God bears out in the life of the believer, love, joy, peace, and so there, there's, it's a condition of inward tranquility within the life of the believer, within the soul of the believer. So it's, it's a ceasing of war. That's the illustration we get in peace. It's a ceasing of war. And so there are two types of peace that God offers. We know the peace with God that the war is over between us and him as we in our lost state are rebelling against his authority and warring against his position of power is that we're, we're reconciled with God. We're made into a right relationship and peace can exist, but we also know that the fruit of the spirit that, in which is produced, that it's, it's the peace of God, the peace with God because of the gospel and what Jesus has done and the peace of God that is born out in the life of the believer. And these men needed uh, peace. They needed peace. But why? Why would he commend peace to them? Why would he include this greeting as some of the first words that he has spoken to many disciples? Well, there was unrest in the lives of these disciples. There is unrest outside of them. We just know the story about how Christ had been crucified. He had been buried and there was a rumor going around that the disciples were going to steal his body. And so that, right, it was heavily guarded, his tomb was. Lo and behold, his body's not there. And so they, they looked and saw what the Roman authorities had done to Christ. And I'm sure they assumed that the, if they had crucified and killed Jesus, what would be of his followers? There is unrest outside of them. They may have been devising a plan to hightail it out of town. The, John's account of, of, of this text says that the doors were locked because of the Jewish authorities. So there is unrest outside of them. So any, any knock on the door is going to freak them out anyway. And so Christ enters in and says, peace to you. But there's also unrest inside of them. That there's inward unrest from the weekend's happenings. Their Lord had been crucified. Their hope had been demolished in his death. They'd heard he was risen, but they were still pessimistically skeptical of, of whether or not that's true, whether or not he really appeared to Simon. And so they needed rest and closure on the resurrection of Christ. Jesus gives them peace, he says in John 16, that, that there will be tribulation and unrest outside of us. But he says, peace I give to you. I say these things that in me you may have 
peace, and peace is extremely important and should be a distinguishing mark of the Christian in a fallen world full of unrest. These men would need inward peace for the journey in which they were about to embark in obedience to the risen Lord Jesus. And really, Christ is our peace. What's the source of peace? It's Jesus Christ. He's the source of peace between a warring relationship with a holy God and sinful man. He is the source of that, of that peace, but he's also the supplier of peace as the believer walks in obedience in a world that is full of tribulation. Look at verse 37. I feel like this is worth mentioning. Verse 37 says, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they had seen the spirit. So they had just had a credible source tell them that Jesus is risen. And as soon as he appears to them and says, peace to you, they think that it's a spirit. And this brings me hope. Um, it should bring you hope that even throughout the lives of the disciples, we see that, that even their growth and understanding is, is progressive. That although they might have mentally acknowledged and affirmed Jesus is risen. They, they, were, they were struggling with the practical living out of obedience of that truth already. And you and I for sure uh, can sympathize with the disciples in this way, affirming theological, doctrinal, biblical truth, but just a struggle and the connection between what we know and what we do. It brings us hope. And in this emotional roller coaster account, of the risen Christ, he's speaking peace into the hearts of his followers, leading them to rest on the proof of his resurrection. Christ is just as patient with us as we see he's going to be with them. And so he sees and perceives their hearts. So not only does he, he speak peace into the lives of, the, of his followers, uh, and reassuring them of the peace that they would now have because of his death, burial, and resurrection. But he also reassures them of his, his bodily resurrection. Look at the text. Look at verse 38. Reassuring them of his body, bodily resurrection. And so he, he begins by, by pressing this issue of unbelief. Jesus perceives their hearts. He knows what is in man and he presses the issue. He sees the loving and helpful thing to do for them is to confront this unbelief that has resonated in their hearts. He confronts it and he deals with his disciples in the way that a good shepherd should, should deal with his followers. He is patient with them, but he doesn't ignore the issue of unbelief because he has at the goal of this, of confronting their sin, the goal for him in doing this is, is, his, is their restoration. It is their good that every intention in the heart of Christ is to, to restore these men to a rock solid belief which is good for them and honors God in the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't ignore it, but at the same time, he doesn't swat them or scold them. 
or berate them, does he? No, he presses in. The king of love, my shepherd is. I thought it was so good that we sang that song because that is exactly who Jesus is. He presses in close, confronting sin with the goal of restoring them to obedience, to the truth of his resurrection. Jesus desires that they believe. He desires that we believe. He wrote in John 14, one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so Jesus poses a question here to, to help them almost self-discern what's going on. You know the power of a question? Somebody asks the right question and it's almost like you begin to answer what's really going on in your own heart and life. And so the right questions are very important. And so Christ poses a question here, confronting their sin of unbelief, helping them discern their own hearts. He wants them to evaluate the source of this doubt and the source of this uncertainty. And so he asks, look at verse 38. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? The picture for troubled here in the book of John, we have an account of, 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 the disciple, of Jesus and his disciples healing this man who's sitting beside the pool of Bethsaida. If you remember that account, and they ask him, the disciples ask this man who's been laying there, why haven't you stepped into this pool that supposedly had healing waters? And, and he says, I can't get in when they stir the pool up. And so that's the picture, that's the, the same word used in stir up is the same word used here for trouble. You see that picture of, of just unrest, unsettledness in the hearts of the, of the disciples. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why are they troubled? If you think about it, what we've just talked about, the, the death of Christ, the loss of hope, the uncertainty of his resurrection, uh, the unsure of the claims, the, the deep anxiety that existed within the hearts of his followers. So Jesus doesn't leave it at troubles, though, in asking the question, what does he say next? What does he ask next? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Jesus doesn't begin with circumstantial issues, but immediately point, points them to the source of their doubt, which is the heart, all of our issues flow out of the heart. All of our sin flows out of the heart. And in the hearts of these disciples was a, it was this inward conflict between the believability of a resurrected Messiah and, and their ability, right, to think and believe. So it, it, it's this, it's a contrast. They're, they're, they're struggling between, Jesus told us he would resurrect, be resurrected, but I'm not sure if I really believe what he has said. Why trouble and why doubt? Circumstances undoubtedly influenced the trouble and the doubt that had arose in their hearts. And Christ, like the good shepherd that he is, he leads them away from their ability to discern. He leaves, leads them away uh, from their anxiety and founds them on the rock-solid teaching of the resurrection found in the word of God. He gives them visible, look at, the, look at verse 39, he gives them visible and physical aids for their doubt. See my hands, 
See my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. He knew that in their hearts they thought it was a spirit. And then he addresses what he knew in their hearts. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. He knows what's in their hearts. So he breaks down those false assumptions of what they thought he was, right, to help clarify. Verse 41, and while they still disbelieve with joy, and, and the, the picture there that we get in verse 41 is just almost, this is too good to be true. Like, I, I, yes, you're there, but I, I'm still struggling to, to comprehend what's going on. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of fish. And so he eats, again, further demonstrating for the faith of these disciples that he had been bodily resurrected. They, they, they disbelieved with joy. This is too good to be true. And then he leads them not only to visible and physical aids to reassure them of the truth, but then he points them and reassures them of his resurrection from the word of God. Look at verse 44. He said to them, these are my words. And so he's progressively leading up to the word of God as being the, the fullest assurance of the resurrection of Christ and his work. That the word of God being the fullest assurance of the work of Jesus. The Old Testament being the fullest assurance of the work of Christ. Moves to the word, reminding them of the word. What has been said in the word First, Christ points them to his actual words in his ministry. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. These are two accounts in the book of Luke earlier on in the ministry where Jesus predicted, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised. So he has already told them. He's saying, he said to them, these were my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember these things. But then he moves on that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so he points to his actual words, which are the words of God because Christ is God. But then he points them to the Old Testament scriptures, reaffirming his work as revealed. And we talked a little bit about this last week. As, as Christ in all the scriptures, that the, that the Bible has as its central figure, Jesus. Like if God is saying one thing in the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ from beginning to end. He's the greater king, right, of David. David's a king. Jesus fulfills that, sits on the throne forever. Brother David walked through the books of the Bible and how they just point to Christ. He's the Passover lamb, in Exodus, we hear the story about a Passover lamb. Jesus fulfills that, rescuing his people from eternal death. He's the ark. That's a vivid description that we, we understand today as the rain came pouring down this morning that Christ is the ark in which we escape the judgment of God's water, the waters of God's judgment. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the final prophet of God that all of these things point to Christ. And so the disciples, he, he understands that how can, they're asking, how can we believe that this is true? And he points them to the scripture, telling them, listen, this is what God has always planned to do. This is the plan. You've, you may not have fully understood it as it's been progressively revealed since Genesis 3, but this is 
the plan of God. And the disciples were asking, how does this fit into the plan of God? And Christ is here saying, based on Old Testament scriptures, I am the plan of God, that this is the plan of God. The centrality of the work of Christ in all the scriptures, it reassures us that this is the work of God, that Christ would come and suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So let me ask you, as a point of application, in what ways do you doubt? Christ, through his word this morning, presses those same questions into your heart. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Maybe this morning you're just a full skeptic like Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. I kind of think that's a disservice if you look at his attitude. His attitude, he said, unless I see the hands and feet of Jesus and touch them myself, I'll never believe. So he was demanding as a creature, demanding evidence from the risen sovereign Lord. He's got to appear or I'm just not going to believe. So maybe you're in full skepticism mode this morning. Well, Christ, right? Christ answers Thomas. He's patient with Thomas. He restores Thomas. Thomas had conditions on his belief. So maybe, maybe you're doubting God's goodness in your suffering. Maybe you're, you're doubting your salvation. And there are some ways you can, that it's good to doubt your salvation. All doubts are not good doubts. Some doubts are better doubts than others. So if, if I live my life and I, I go through suffering and I begin to doubt, well, I just doubt, I'm just beginning to doubt that the Lord wants me to be happy and comfortable. That's a good doubt. Like, yes, doubt that because that's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. And there's a good and bad way to doubt your salvation as well. But And if you're doubting your salvation, that you belong to God, that you're a follower of Christ, and you say, well, I'm beginning to doubt my salvation because there's no evidence whatsoever in my life that I'm submitting in obedience to Jesus, that's a good doubt. That's good that you're thinking through that and examining that. But for the believer who has some assurance, who just struggles with assurance, there's an other side of that. As as you grow in Christ-likeness, but you also grow in knowledge of your own sinfulness, there's a true and real reality that you... You, you have bad grounds to doubt your assurance because of your lack of perfection. And that is an, that's an unhealthy doubt that needs to be led to the assurance of the work of Christ on your behalf. And so in what ways are you doubting this morning? Christ is asking you. And he's saying that the word of God is, is true. That if God says that pleasures and joys are at his right hand and that obedience brings blessing, that it's true. If he says that sin brings forth death, James 1.15, destruction, dysfunction, it's, it's true. If he says the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, it will march on until Jesus comes back, then it's, it's true. If he says he opposes the proud, it's true. If he says he gives grace to the humble, it's true. And so based on his truth, right, we align our obedience and submit to Christ. If he says your guilt has been erased and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, whether or not you feel like it or can discern its reality here and now, it's true. The disciples in Luke chapter 17, they pray what I often pray, what we collectively should pray. Lord, increase our faith. 
increase our faith. Our entire life as Christians is that prayer, Lord, increase our faith, increase our faith. Arturo Azurdia, a pastor and preacher, has a definition of faith that I think is very helpful and will be helpful to us. He says, authentic faith is not merely believing in God, but it's believing God, taking God at his word. Listen to me, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. So true faith, he says, is an abiding assurance in God and his promises, listen to me, that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. So what we believe, what we have true faith in directly impacts our obedience or not. And all of our sin is directly tied back to a lack of belief in God. I've learned this over the past year and a half, just as God has opened up my heart to fully understand why we do, I do the things that I do, that a lot of it is tied to, back to unbelief. If you're discontent this morning, you're driven by an attitude of entitlement that believes the lie that you deserve better than what God has allotted you in your life. It's a lack of belief in God's wisdom and providence. That's a lack of belief. If, if you're struggling with lust this morning, it's a lack of belief that God can fully satisfy you. If you're struggling with selfishness, you're believing the lie that living for yourself will make you happy and fulfilled. It's a lack of belief that the spirit-empowered service is what you were created for. If you're, if you're struggling with anxiety, it's a lack of belief and trust in God who controls our circumstances, the providence of God. In the midst of tragedy and heartache, right, and you're anxious, you're struggling to believe, as the disciples were in this text, after the death of Christ, how can good come from this? And it's a real and true struggle. But Christ, like the good shepherd he is, is leading you and I, he is leading the disciples to increase their faith based on the reliability of the word of God. So whether or not you and I are able to sift through the fog of our doubt, to fully understand all the ways in which his promises are, are coming to bear in our life, we trust him. We trust him, the author of the truth. Not, we don't trust our ability to work out the details of his timing or our ability to fully comprehend. And, and that's what the disciples are doing in this text. They're, they're trusting in their own ability to comprehend the idea of a resurrected Christ. In Mark chapter nine, another account that I love, that I often pray, it's the, it's the man whose son is possessed by a demon. The disciples try and cast it out. They come to Jesus and they say, we tried to cast out this demon. We cannot cast him out. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. And so he, the, this is a discourse between Jesus and this man. And Jesus says to him, the father, if you can, because the man says, if you can, will you heal him? If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, Lord, help, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. This man recognized that he was unable to muster up belief 
He, he cried out for something that could not be manufactured within himself and called out to Christ, the object of our faith, to increase the faith in which he had. And that is what we are to do. So what am I to do if I'm, if I'm struggling with believing the word of God, the promises of God, the providence of God? A, a good first step is, is humbling yourself and saying, Lord, I, I'm struggling to believe you here. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. Much of our doubting would be cured. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if we would stop, if we would not spend so much time talking, no, listening to ourselves as we do talking to ourselves. You see that speaking the truth into our hearts rather than following our own comprehension down the road of doubt. So much of our doubting would be helped if we were committed to the body of Christ. And I say this because it's experientially true in my own life. I need brothers and sisters to speak the truth of God's word into my life, into my heart, reorient me to reality, break down my doubts and help break down my doubts. There is no telling the amount of doubt and unbelief God has saved me from through the church speaking, singing, preaching, praying the word of God into my life. That is so true that doubt and anxiety and trouble, that the breeding grounds for those things is isolation. And that the body of Christ is a gift to the believer as we're all struggling to, to increase our faith in the word and purposes of God. I love the picture of Jesus in this passage. And one last way to, to help in our doubt. Our doubt is really not just belief, disbelief in the word of God, because you cannot separate the word of God from God himself. So it's a, it's a lack of trust in God, who is the author of his word. And so one of the best remedies for doubt, as I have seen, is coming to know the one who gives the promises is being well acquainted with God and who he is as revealed in his word, drawing near to Christ, the object of our faith, the supplier of our faith. Hebrews 10, 23, I love how it words this, how the author of Hebrews words this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He says, for he who has promised is faithful. He doesn't say that the words of God are faithful, although that, that would suffice. He says, he who has made the promise, God is faithful. Drawing near to God. And then verse 45, he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. They needed illumination into the word of God and how it all pointed to Christ. Uh, Christ is doing for them what the spirit of God does for us in our salvation. The spirit of God convicts, the Spirit of God leads us to repentance, which is a change of mind. And so if you are saved this morning, there was a point in place in your life where your mind was changed about your sin. Your mind was changed about God. Your mind was changed about Christ, that you may have thought Christ a nice addition to your life, but in your salvation, you see the one that you were apathetic about or maybe hostile towards. And he, he has become in your mind beautiful and desirable and worthy of your life. And so there's a change of your mind in your salvation. And so Christ is opening up their minds, pointing them to the scriptures, illuminating for them, doing what the spirit of God does for us now. 
And listen to me, this is a gracious step of Christ. He does not have to do this. God does not have to do that for us, but he graciously does to give us assurance of Christ in all the scriptures. So he reminds them, reassures them of his word, but he also reassures them of their purpose. Look at verse 46. He reassures them of their purpose. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so the grounding in these truths are leading to their purpose, their commission, what, what he has called them to do. We see this in the, in the book of Ephesians. We see this in the book of Romans, that how some of the epistles were written by the apostle Paul, that Paul spends a unique amount of time on truth, on doctrine, on God, on Christ, on our salvation in the book of Ephesians, chapters one through three. And then he begins in chapter four to, to call them. He says, for now, now therefore, because of everything that I've just said, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so before he, he gives like these, these practical applications, he spends a good amount of time on doctrine. He does the same thing in the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 are, are really deep doctrine. And then verse 12, he, he picks up, I therefore urge you, Romans 12, 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we, we kind of see that in the text, don't we? We see Christ wanting to ground them in the truth, leading up to what he would call them to do. So he says, thus it is written. We know Isaiah 53, Christ should suffer. Resurrection, we see in Psalm 16, you won't, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. We see the death, burial, and resurrection in, in those specific passages. But the way that Jesus is speaking here, he's not re referring to just those specific passages, right? Psalm 22, we know, we know the messianic promises, but he, he's talking about the whole thing. He's talking about, he gives the three sweeping categories of the Old Testament here, right? I mean, he, he talks about the law, the prophets, the Psalms, it is written, he points them to, to, the, to the word of Christ and then commissions them. And then he gives them their commission in verse 47. He says, because of this truth, if this is true, this is what's going to happen. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The gospel uh, must include repentance. That's the gospel message. That God has created us, we are accountable to him, and if we're all completely honest, we fall short of his standard. We have broken his laws. We have disobeyed. We're born that way. And that, that, that there's this huge gap and chasm between us and a God who cannot look upon sin. And so that's where the work of Christ comes in, his death on the cross. But then there's a response. And this is the response that Jesus preached. This is the response that John the Baptist preached. This is the response that Paul preached, that Peter preached, is that it's repentance. It's a, it's a, it's a turning from, it's a, it's a supernatural change of your mind about the things of God. It, it's a willingness to forsake sin and turning away from 
sin and turning to Christ. And he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins, that forgiveness can now be available, not because of your good efforts, not because of our, our trying and our, you know, our attempts at better moral behavior. You, you can be forgiven because God justly punished Jesus for our sin. So that forgiveness is only available if sin has truly been punished. And that's what Christ did on the cross. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed to all nations. To all nations. And I want to challenge you here as we think about, and we wrap up, as we think about missions and what we're called to do, uh, because the resurrection is true. That we see here that included in this great commission is, is who, who's included in this text? The what? The the nations, the nations, the glory of God among the nations. Our motivation for missions, for gospel proclamation and kingdom advancement, it must include a true desire for the benefits that come as a result of salvation. We genuinely want people to know the forgiveness of sins. Like we, we want people to know that they're in a right relationship with God. We want them to be forgiven. We want peace to exist in their life, right? We want a new heart to be given to them so that their life might change to live for the glory of God. But those are all secondary benefits as, as motivations, which are good motivations. We all have people that we care about, that we love, that we know the truths about eternity, that we don't want them spending eternity in hell. But I wanna challenge us to think about the center of our motivation, the center of our motivation being the glory of God amongst the nations. That we should plead with our neighbors for the glory of God because God is worthy of glory. God is worthy of praise. We should plead with God, with God for our neighbors in Lucy for his glory. God's glory amongst the Indonesians, Bolivians, Nicaraguans, wherever we go, that this, the central motivation for the disciples was to be the, the glory of God as his kingdom advances. That, that, that missions encapsulates a, a desire for God's glory. And it's not restricted to a trip that's taken overseas. It's, it impacts how we live on a day-to-day -day basis. He says, beginning where? where? Where does he say in the text? Beginning in... Jerusalem, where they were, God's glory among the children in our church. I have three unreached people groups sleeping in my home that I desire, I, I plead on behalf of the glory of God in their life. Plead on behalf of his glory in Lucy, in his name, for his name. And so Christ has reassured these men. Listen to me, the resurrection changes everything. It, it, it just changes everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists a, a few things that if Jesus has not been raised, that it changes. Let me just list them real quick. He says, our preaching is in vain. So I'm, I'm wasting breath up here. And not only the preaching of the pulpit, but just the preaching of the truth into the lives of the people that we're trying to impact. It's in vain. He says, our faith is in vain if Jesus has not been resurrected. He says that we're, we're found to be lying about God, misrepresenting God, saying that he raised Jesus when in reality he did not. 
I'm saying that's what we think. He did raise him. You understand what I'm saying? He says, our faith is futile. And then he says, and you are still in your sins if Jesus has not been raised. Now think about the implications of those things for what he's called them to do, uh, what he's called us to do in missions. If, if Christ has not been raised, listen, we can just relax. We can eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we perish but he has been raised. Our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. And we are not in our sins. And so you see how that changes. What does that change for the disciples? Paul also says that the last enemy to be destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15 is death. And it's been destroyed. So you talk about, I mean, I was thinking about jumping out of a plane, skydiving, I need to be, needed to be reassured of the truth. And I, I could jump out of the plane too, because I knew I was a Christian. And if I die, I'm going to heaven. But this, the same is true in risk for missions, that, that we're, we're freed up to risk and to go and to serve because our sins have been forgiven and because death has been destroyed. Death has been destroyed. The worst scenario that could come about because of our obedience to Jesus in spreading the gospel has been destroyed and works in our benefit. That's why the attitude could exist in the apostle Paul. Do I want to die or do I want to continue serving Jesus? Like he was hard pressed in Philippians between dying and going to be with Jesus, which he said was far greater for him or staying to serve on the behalf of the church at Philippi. Like that was a real struggle in the heart of Paul. Like, do I want to die or do I, I want to continue to serve? Because death has been defeated. And, and when he would have died, he would have been with Jesus, which is far greater. So Jesus removes the sting of death in light of missions. He, he's, he's, he's commissioning these men because I've been raised. Listen, go. And, and what happened to 11 of the 12 disciples? It testified to, that they believed that he was resurrected because they died martyrs' deaths. They were willing to risk their lives, right? Because their lives were not theirs because of the resurrection of Christ. And so let me ask you in closing application, based on this point, this truth, do, do you live as if Christ has been raised? Do you live as if your sin has been paid for? Do you live as if death is not an enemy and that it has been defeated? Or is there a casual seeking for comfort, business as usual attitude in your heart when it comes to your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving family, your unbelieving neighbors, the unbelieving nations. And kind of summarizing this entire passage as, because the disciples displayed in, in the next months and years what they believed through how they lived. Somebody could look at these men, and that's, that's a great assurance for the resurrection of Christ. Somebody could look at these men and say, what is it that they believe? And we could say with confidence, they believed that Jesus had been bodily resurrected. And that was his entire purpose through this passage, reinforcing in their hearts the truth that he taught them that was visible in front of their eyes, that is testified in the scriptures and their life demonstrated. So let me ask you this. What does your life demonstrate that you believe in all areas? 
What are you telling people that you believe with the way that you spend your money, with the way that you invest your time, hours and hours and hours? What do you give to? What does that reflect that you truly believe? Christ frees us up because of the resurrection to risk all for his mission. And the last point, he reassured them of their power. Hey, I'm about to commission you to go to the nations to preach repentance, but you can't do it in your own strength. That's what he says in verse 48, sending the promise of my father upon you. And it's, it's awesome to know in Acts chapter two that he was faithful to his promise, that he sent the spirit, empowered the mission of God. And we stand here today. I stand here today as, the, as a testimony to the faithfulness of God to do what he said he was going to do. We must be dependent in our mission. This is not about us mustering up strength. It's about us being humble, yielding, being dependent in prayer. Listen, we, can, we, we have no power to convert hearts. We have no power to convict that we must be dependent on the Holy Spirit. So let's bow as we respond in prayer. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions, or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.